In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome to episode 28 of Paw and Order. I'm your host, Camille Labchuk, and I'm jo- joined today by my co-host, as usual, Peter Sankoff. Hey, Peter. Hey, Camille. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm not as good as I was a week ago today, which is uh, because I was in Mexico a week today on vacation. Uh, well, vacation always helps. Yeah, it does. It does. I spent four days in Mexico City and ate a bunch of vegan food. There is so much good vegan stuff there these days. It's like the city's just undergoing this massive veganization. So had all these amazing tacos and a bunch of other delicious stuff. And then I spent about a week on the beach in a small town called Zipulite. Uh, That was really fun, too. Uh, One cool story I want to tell is about an iguana rescue operation, kind of a crazy thing that happened. But we were on this tour, basically, of a mangrove swamp. It's called a place called La Ventanilla, which means, like, little window. It's, it's the name of a beach. And there's a mangrove swamp that was devastated, Peter, a few years ago by a hurricane. So there's this great group that's reforesting the mangrove swamp, and they do nonprofit tours, and they're just, like, really, really great people. Also very anti-animal captivity. We had this great conversation about crocodiles. Because there's this other tour group nearby that, that guarantees that you'll see crocodiles. But the reason they do that is that they keep them in captivity, which is obviously not good. Always a bummer. Always a bummer. But our awesome guide named David was telling us how there's a lot of iguanas in the park, and we saw lots of them. And poachers come and capture them so they can A, take their eggs and scramble them, and then B, I guess, prepare them with the flesh of the iguanas, which apparently is a a dish that they can sell locally in the Oaxaca region. So it was kind of sad, and he was saying that the police don't usually do a whole lot about it, but we were leaving the tour, it was all over, and suddenly we see all these policia walking toward us with this container. And it turns out this container, Peter, this bin, was just full of iguanas who'd been rescued from the poachers that same morning. Wow. Yeah, and that is, they that is the... always something. The, the international wildlife trade is some scary, scary business, and all these people. I, I, it just drives me crazy. People with lizards and various reptiles in their home, and they're all, oh no, just bread in Canada. You know, these are just all safe, wonderful things. When really, there's just a huge international wildlife trade exploiting these animals out of the native homes. Yeah, whether it's for pets, whether it's entertainment and, and zoos or for, for meat, it's it's all horrible and just awful for them. But the worst thing, and I don't want to freak people out too much with this, so I won't go into too much details, but the iguanas had their legs tied behind their backs. And the way the poachers had done this, I thought it was with dental floss. that They asked for help kind of untying them and releasing them back into the wild, so I was helping them the police and the park people, and realized it wasn't actually dental floss. The poachers had, like, pulled out tendons from the iguana's own legs and tied them up with their own body parts. It was just disgusting. It's one of those things that makes you just think, like, wow, as bad as we think it is for animals, there's always a new way people are finding to be terrible. Always can get worse. I remember the first time I learned about shark finning. I was like, yep, there's always another level we can drop to. 
It's amazing. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, we have that not hit be... rock bottom. That can't be the capper on your uh, Mexico trip. Camille was well in need of a vacation doing, you know, we won't bore everyone by telling all the animal justice business she's been up to, but there's been uh, lots of business going on and just needed a break, you know? So I hope you got some good beach time. I did. I did. I had a really good time. Good. And I understand you've got some international travel on the horizon as well, Peter. I do. I can't even remember if we mentioned this on the last episode because things have been going uh, uh, a little bit crazy. I think we might have highlighted that this was possible. But yeah, I'm suddenly going to Africa. I'm I'm probably going to miss the next paw in order uh, just because uh, my moot team uh, from the University of Alberta won a a, a national moot called the Gale Cup. And that qualified us for another international moot called the uh, Commonwealth Law Moot. It's being held in Zambia, uh, right near Victoria Falls. And um, in a few weeks' time, I'm somehow supposed to get my life together and jet off to Zambia for nine days. So it's very, very exciting. I leave uh, early April. Well, no big deal. Just jetting off to Zambia. That's that's going to be cool. Or is there good wildlife opportunities in the area? It's it's Africa and it's right in the heart of it. So it's uh, it's, it's going to be pretty unbelievable. It's uh, Victoria Falls itself is 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 an incredible site, which I'm looking forward to seeing. I've, I've never been to Africa and uh, we are, you know, planning a couple of wildlife safaris, getting a chance to get out and see some wildlife. Apparently uh, we're right in the thick of it. So it's very, very exciting. I'm looking forward to it. I'm not looking forward to the shots I have to get in the next couple of days, but uh, <laughs> otherwise the rest of it's exciting. It's it's. You know, it's hard to carve uh, nine days out of my schedule, sort of out of nothing. Like suddenly I just, okay, I need nine days to go to Africa, but I will manage. Let's put it that way. Well, I'm sure you're going to have some pretty fun stories for us when you get back from that trip. So I look yes. forward to your return from the podcast. And I guess I'll have to find a guest host for the next episode. Yes, the post the post Zambia pod, the post Zambia podcast should be pretty epic. I'll, I'm looking forward to that already. <laughs> All right. Well, in other news, some other stuff that we've been up to, we spoke about this probably a few podcasts ago now, but Peter, of course, you and I testified at the Justice Committee in the House of Commons about Bill C-84, which would tighten up laws related to animal fighting and also outlaw all bestiality. So an issue that we've been working on for ages. And I think we filled people in on what we'd asked the Justice Committee to do. But I specifically said that they needed to do two things to amend this bill. One is give judges the authority to ban uh, people convicted of bestiality from owning or having care or control of animals in the future, which was not in there and just seemed like a huge oversight. And the second thing was delete a provision of the criminal code that's in there right now that says that any cocks seized from a cockfighting ring have to automatically be killed. There's no discretion for a judge or law enforcement to do otherwise. And it seemed like there was lots of support around the table when we brought this up. All the MPs were pretty positive to it from all the parties. The cool thing is that when the committee went clause by clause in the bill, which is when they examine all the testimony and make changes and suggestions, is that they did in fact approve what we'd be asking for. So judges now can ban bestiality abusers from animal ownership and uh, birds don't have to automatically be killed. And it's cool to bring up because I think uh, probably our listeners might not understand how rare it is to actually get amendments like this approved. It's definitely not a sure thing. There's always competing political interests. And especially when it comes to animals, it's difficult to make any progress. So I'm so proud that we were able to do that. We were the only group really pushing for that that brought it up. And 
I just want to say thank you to everyone who supports animal justice because this is an example of the kind of work that we can do with your support. No question. I actually want to go, go a little further on this because I, I actually think this is one of the best things that animal legal groups can do. And this is reminiscent of some things that we got done when I was with an animal law group in New Zealand. And I say that because a lot of times when you bring in, and this is not to knock any group, I mean, you bring in the groups that uh, talk to parliamentarians about uh, various aspects of the substantive issue that's being resolved, and they will speak very emotively. I remember, uh, you may recall, uh, Camille, when I was testifying there was a witness there who was giving very emotive testimony about what's wrong with this and what's wrong with that. And that's all wonderful. And it's important to bring that before parliamentarians, too. But what legal groups are really able to do is bring a certain credibility with them and really talk about specific legal amendments that matter. And some of these legal amendments might not seem as big as the big emotive issues. It's much more fun to talk about, you know, oh, animals are getting, getting killed every day, or this is a terrible particular practice, and all very important to bring on board. But I have found it's incredibly effective when lawyers come and speak to parliamentarians to point out some of the legal loopholes, because the truth is that the, the, the parliamentarians are not always legal experts, and they like to defer to lawyers who are raising particular suggestions about things. And I remember an example back in New Zealand when there was um, um, we were involved in a dog control bill, and you know everybody was coming one way or another about dangerous dogs and bad dogs and these dogs. And we came in with very, very specific amendments that were designed to fix very specific problems. And I think that what happened in this case is not the type of thing that's necessarily going to get great big headlines, but the ability to ban um, and, and order prohibition orders where you have people who have been convicted of bestiality is quite a big deal because that is the best way to ensure that uh, further mistreatment of animals doesn't happen. And in the absence of the amendment that we made, that wouldn't have been possible. It just it wouldn't have been a, a, a matter that was available under the code as it exists. So sometimes these subtle types of changes are really the best way when you're talking about getting incremental legal change for animals. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And I just really want to thank the committee as well for giving us uh, such a good opportunity to chat with them and the interest around the table from all the parties. It was uh, really enjoyable to be there and very grateful that they took our changes. So now the bill is going back to the House of Commons for final debate and third reading. I expect it to pass. It's moving to the Senate next. We may testify at the Senate Justice Committee as well, and we'll keep you all posted. Hope so. All right. And then another cool thing that happened recently. I'm so excited about this. This happened while I was on vacation. So I ended up doing some work on it, but it was too exciting not to. How dare I think you? We, yeah, I know. I think we spoke about this on the last podcast. Maybe not. But there was a new transit ad campaign by the Dairy Farmers of Canada. And these guys have an $80 million marketing budget. They spend a lot of money on ads trying to convince people to drink milk. One of their latest campaigns involved transit ads, YouTube ads, TV ads. We did ads. talk about it, Camille, because I remember we saw it. Like, we um, we, um, we saw it. We when saw we one in Toronto? To, uh, yeah, we went to the <laughs> – sorry, I can't even speak today. We went to – I remember we saw one of these crazy ads when we went by uh, – in Toronto. I think we were going out for pizza. Okay, well, then I'm glad that you remember that because I don't, but I but do. Good. I do. So I we did speak about episode. it. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, then you, if you listen to the last episode, this won't be a totally new issue to you. But one of the ads 
in particular was just blatantly false. So it was a, a transit ad that says there are zero growth hormones in milk producing Canada, like none. And there's a picture of like a wholesome looking farmer there with like a denim jacket on and dairy farmer's logo. And it says honest Canadian dairy. Funny that they would choose to use the word honest, right? Because the mm. interesting thing about this is, of course, that milk is naturally full of growth hormones. Whether you add hormones in or not as a dairy farmer, uh, milk is full of growth hormones. So there's uh, insulin growth factor one, which is a naturally occurring growth hormone. It's present in all cow's milk, and it helps turn baby calves into thousand pound adults. And there's other hormones as well. So a lot of people started seeing these ads when they came out. There were tons of posts on social media with people just really concerned about this because it's obviously blatantly false. And Animal Justice helped people file complaints to the Ad Standards, uh, to Ad Standards Canada, which is a voluntary industry ad association. It sort of does this thing that I don't really like, which is police ads from like a non-binding industry-led process. So you can submit a complaint if you think an ad falls far short of their standards and including being true or not. So a lot of people uh, submitted complaints to add standards about this ad and said, this is just blatantly false. All milk has hormones. And it turns out ad standards contacted Dairy Farmers of Canada and they agreed to take the ad down. So it is now apparently gone. This misleading awesome. transit ad campaign is out of here. Uh, addendum, I'm not sure how long it's going to take them to take these ads down. I've heard stories about them still being up in different places. But uh, the great thing, Peter, is that there were news stories about this. Uh, it was a great Canadian press story about the fact that they had to take this ad down. And it made them look really bad, as it should, because they were blatantly lying to the public. There you go. I like it. Yeah, fun times. Get rid of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, all we right. Got well, more animal justice news, don't we? Uh, as always, um, by the time this podcast is out, it'll be Friday, March 15th. And I want you to all keep in mind that this is the last weekend to submit a proposal to speak at the inaugural Canadian Animal Law Conference hosted by Dalhousie, uh, the, the Schulich School of Law. You got and it right, Camille. Justice. Camille, I know. Finally, this is like. I, I, can we, can we get like some applause? The first time I've ever said Schulich correctly we, on the we, podcast. We, we need the applause. We need the applause. And she got Schulich applause. right. I, I I figure after six tries, Camille, you deserve a little applause. Hey, it was only three tries. Okay. <laughs> I think it's more like six. <laughs> but anyway. the application deadline for presentations is March 18th. So that's Monday, March 18th. Yeah. We would love to hear from you if you have ideas. You can visit CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca for more details and uh please make a submission we are very excited about this conference we think this is going to be uh just a wonderful chance to bring together all all uh scholars and and thinkers and workers and researchers all across the pro uh, the country and really from across the world to talk about animal law issues it's the first full-on canadian animal law conference camille from what i heard everybody in the country is really buzzing about this conference isn't they <laughs> Just oh, totally. for all sorts of reasons. It's just it's buzz, buzz, buzz. Yeah, there's there's lots of discussion, lots of emails. Lots are very of excitement. excited. And yes, for all I... of those of you asking when registration is going to open, stay tuned. But probably sometime May, June, around that time. 
Yeah, we are really excited. We're, we, we are still in the process of designing the conference, right? Where this is, this is sort of the input phase where we're getting ideas from people about what they want to do. But there's no question that the organizers, which include, I mean, it's, it's primarily Professor Jody Lazar from Dalhousie and, of course, the Animal Justice team. Uh, we're, we're definitely keen to think about some different ways to get all this great content out to you, uh, including a day for students. Uh, so we're really excited about what's going to happen in October. Definitely. So if you have ideas apart from applying to present, please just email us through the conference website. We'd love to hear them. So now we have some uh, podcast news. We don't do that very often. Just before we get into our uh, our, our, our uh, main topics and our discussion of uh, uh, news across Canada, we're going to do a little bit of talking about the podcast. It's been a while, Camille. We're, we're past our one-year anniversary, and we have a few announcements to make. The first of them, not a huge one, but for people like me who use Spotify, we can tell you that you can now find us on Spotify in addition to all the other podcatchers you can usually catch us on. That's right. So please look us up. We're also on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and uh, most of your other favorite podcatchers. And I should say, by the way, I have gone by and looked at Apple reviews. You guys have gotten a little slack. It's been quiet. So if any of you out there haven't given us an Apple review in a while, we always uh, like to see them. Uh, It's nice to hear what our listeners are thinking about the work that we're doing. Yeah, yeah. And don't forget that it helps more people find the podcast. So you're doing a good thing for animals if you leave us a review. That's right. But uh, the bigger news for us is that we are going to be uh, not changing, Camille. I don't think that's a fair way to put it. But we are uh, looking. We've now been doing this for over a year. And um, in fairness, it's a lot of work and a lot of time and a fair bit of money from animal justice to put us in support. So we are looking to see if our many, many wonderful listeners want to help us out in making this the best darn podcast in the country. That's right. And to do that, we're going to announce, uh, or we're announcing today that we're launching a Patreon page for people to help support us. So if you already know what Patreon is, um, that's great. But if not, it's a membership-based platform to support creators. So people who create content, whether that be musicians, visual artists, writers, you name it. But it's a way for fans of things like our podcast to become patrons of it and support the creators behind the content that they love and ensure that the content can keep coming out. So uh, you would have the option to visit patreon.com slash paw and order, which is where it will be when it launches on March 29th and support us. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in greater detail when we actually launch it about different membership levels. But, you know, essentially we put out a new episode every two weeks. Uh, occasionally we take a week off or, or push it back a week, but it's it's been just over a year that we're doing that. And we do this because we really are passionate about breaking mm. down complex animal law topics and legal issues pertaining to animals in a way that you can understand. So you don't have to be a lawyer to understand what animal law is and how you can make a difference. And we really are doing this because we want to inspire listeners to make positive change for animals. But we do need support to keep this going. We would love to do an even better version of this podcast and having more support would, would help us do that. And there's no question. Just keep in mind that, as obvious as it sounds, like neither Camille nor I profit from this uh, in any way whatsoever. Um, this is all a volunteer uh, fundraising effort, and essentially, but but there's no question that Animal Justice has been the ones that have supported our ability to do this. So essentially, money is coming out of the organization that could otherwise be going to other animal issues um and 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 for that reason we have a producer working on this full-time well part-time of course and all the other aspects of the the podcast need our support so so we feel that a patreon page if we could get to the point where where pawn order is essentially independently 
funding itself, um, that would be a wonderful thing because then we would no longer have to feel like we're devoting time away from some of the other things we need to do in order to support this uh, important endeavor. And that's what the Patreon page is really all about. That's exactly it. And with support, we might be able to do exciting things like pay for researchers to help us with the content of the podcast and produce even better episodes for you guys. So we will have absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we will have a membership type program. It'll include membership tiers starting at just a dollar a month, a couple dollars a month and perks that accompany these things. So handwritten thank you notes, name mentions on the podcasts, share notes on social media. You can dedicate a podcast to a human or a non-human animal, uh, maybe a chance to appear on the show, merchandise, and of course, our utmost gratitude and appreciation. We, we have... We, we have no shortage of cool ideas of how to create premium content. We just need the support and, you know, interest from our listening audience, and we'll get there, I promise you. Totally. So we'll, we'll provide more information about this in the next episode, but we do hope you'll visit patreon.com slash order on March 29th and become a patron. Yep, absolutely. And with that in mind, we should talk about our greatest patron, Camille, because we do have one patron already who's been doing everything for us for many, many weeks. And hopefully you will also go out and support them, our good friends at The Grinning Goat. The Grinning Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique. I buy tons of stuff from The Grinning Goat. And actually, on my trip to Mexico, Peter, I took their bar shampoo and conditioner with me. So these are like essentially pucks. They look like pucks of soap but they're shampoo and conditioner and they come in these little metal tins. So they're super transportable and they're, they're great for a few reasons. They help you cut down on waste. So you're not buying plastic, which is great. I'm trying to avoid plastic and become more zero waste. Like a lot of people are these days. You avoid the hassle of liquids in your carry on and save suitcase space as well. Uh, so apart from cool things like bar shampoo and conditioner, they also have amazing footwear, outerwear, clothing, socks, other apparel. And for our listeners, of course, there is a special discount code. You can enter PAW15 at checkout and get 15% off your order. And of course, the Grinning Goat ships nationwide. Absolutely. And in the news, we've got tons of stuff to catch up on as usual. The first one is an issue that's no stranger to this podcast, but huge news in Ontario. Peter, the OSPCA, Ontario SPCA, has formally given notice to the province of Ontario that it is withdrawing from doing enforcement of animal cruelty laws. It is kind of amazing, Camille, to hear all this happening uh, right before us. It's just uh, we've been talking for so many years about what might happen if uh, if various uh, private charities decide to leave the business of enforcement and uh, the fact that it's starting to happen first with the Edmonton Humane Society a few months back and now with the OSPCA and a much larger withdrawal is just uh, it's pretty earth shattering we're starting to see the the legal framework for investigative work around animals change right before our eyes and even though we're not sure exactly where it's going it's pretty exciting to watch. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uncertainty, but we think that you can't change the system without doing something big and bold to mix things up a little bit. And I, I just have to say I'm really proud and impressed by the OSPCA for doing this, for having the fortitude and the foresight to understand that they're no longer in the best position to be doing this work, that they don't get enough money to be doing it, that they're giving the province cover to avoid taking responsibility for animal welfare. I think it's a really brave move, and I'm really proud of them for doing this. So who knows what's going to happen next? It's a big unknown. Me too. I, I'm excited, and it's good to see that right away there are, I mean, it, it, I would I would always prefer, let's, let's be honest, if some of this stuff was looked at 
first before decisions were made. I, I would, I always prefer a proactive approach in which we actually have the time to sort of sift through, well, what are the best ways forward? We can have a, a real sound policy examination, and then we can, you know, maybe make decisions to a transition. That would all ultimately be ideal. It's not always possible. But at the end of the day, it is pleasant to see that there are people looking at that. The, the OSPCA has not just sort of dropped the ball and said, well, we're out. Um, they are open to looking at different cooperative models with the government. And there's some really interesting um, uh, research we should shout out to uh, Dr. Kendra Coulter at Brock University, who's really trying to lead some of the discussion on this issue and trying to say, well, what should we do? What, what should the enforcement of of animal uh, uh, crimes against animals actually look like. And I think that's a very positive thing that we're looking at this as not a crisis situation, but sort of as an opportunity for where we go next. Yeah, totally. And a lot of people are wondering, where do we go next? And is there going to be a gap? Are uh, animals going to be left unprotected in this province? Well, the good news is that, no, I don't think that they will be for a couple reasons. So the OSBCA is withdrawing as of March 31st, formally, when their funding agreement expires with the government. But they've offered to stay on until June 28th for an additional three-month period to make sure that animals still benefit from from their assistance in that time and to give the government time to come up with something new. Uh, in the meantime, so during this period, in the past, in the future, the police still have authority to enforce animal cruelty laws. They always have, and uh, they still will in the future. So it's not like there's going to be a situation where no one can enforce or investigate these laws, which is a good thing. But of course, fundamentally and more long term, we need a more permanent solution. So that's something I know that the OSPCA is going to be working on. We're going to be assisting with that. Um, Dr. Coulter is doing so. A lot of people are starting to put their heads together and try to devise a better system. So if you want to play a role in this, the best thing I would recommend right now is contacting your provincial representative and whoa, letting whoa. them know that you care. Whoa, hold oh, on. Oh, did I Sorry. hear some Yes, hoops? I heard. I heard the hooves again. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's me on my hobby horse. There you go, go. Get political, folks. Absolutely. Let them know that you care and you want to see a well-funded public system. Yes. We need a well-funded public system. Um, no, I, I think all of those things are true, and I think uh, it, it, it's important to recommend. It's important to remember that the police always have this power. It's not as if the, the crimes against animals sections of the code are no longer going to exist, or that no one will look after animals. The the, the there is the, the real concern is that the police won't do it um, in, in as dedicated a way or as, you know, with the with the resources available of the OSPCA. And that's that's undoubtedly true. It's not like they can just instantly fill in that void. But there are ways for them to fill in that void. There are other options available that do not uh, require leaving the investigative burden to uh, the OSPCA. And I think, you know, ultimately what that's going to look like is going to depend upon uh, some pretty serious consultations, some thought process, and, and, and you're right, Camille, some uh, contribution from the people of Ontario to make it clear as to what it is they want with respect to their animals. Totally. And that kind of brings us to the next story we want to talk about, which is also along the topic of enforcement and in your hometown of Edmonton, Peter. Uh, so we've talked before on this podcast about the fact that the Edmonton Humane Society chose to withdraw from enforcement a couple months ago. 
And doom and gloom was predicted, Camille. There was a lot of doom and gloom. There were a lot of people saying, how dare they do that? This is a disaster. This is going to be the end of the end of the end. And the truth of the matter was, all evidence was showing that they weren't doing the job as well as we might like them to do. They were struggling to keep up with it. They were struggling to meet their budget uh, uh, um, um, targets. They were struggling with rules that would have required officers in uh, in Alberta to work in pairs. It was just, it was, it was becoming more and more difficult for Edmonton Humane Society to do it. And I think we talked about this before. They made the sensible decision not to. Well, that left a void. And guess what? That void needed to be filled. Yeah. And everyone, a lot of people were concerned about this. They said, oh, animals are just going to be unprotected. What does the EHS think it's doing? This is terrible. Well, guess what? It's a void that has been filled. The Edmonton Council just approved an $800,000 annual funding model for animal protection services. Yeah, which will have four full-time inspectors, which is more than what the OSPC, which is more than what the Edmonton Humane Society had. It will work on weekends because it'll be a fully, uh, uh, um, you know, public agency. And guess what, Camille? You ready for the crazy part, Camille? Like what, just, Peter? just to show how crazy it is, like just to show how crazy it is to actually find solutions to problems. Because remember, when the Edmonton Humane Society did it, it was essentially being paid for. Enforcement was being paid for by charity. That's really what it was. It was people public who loved donations. animals. Yeah, we're making public donations. How about we change the model, Camille? Let's let's get really radical and crazy. How about users should pay? For enforcement. Well, who are users? Well, not surprisingly, the users are the people who own cats and dogs. And it is those cats and dogs that are being protected by this new government agency. So essentially, what they're talking about doing is raising license fees. Like, that's the way you do it. You're essentially trying to put the cost onto the end users. God, Camille, just just imagine for just a minute. It just really take transport your mind to that place, Camille. Imagine if we really wanted to regulate farms. Oh, my God. God, how could we do it? What would we do? How could we put, you know, is there just, just we just don't have enough money, Camille, to regulate farm. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, right. We could just tax farms, right? We could just actually tax the users to regulate themselves. Like that's, it, it, these, these solutions are not all that difficult. Do you know what I'm saying? You just, it's, they just, they just require a willingness to actually do them. That's the problem. Political will. That's, yeah. that's it. There's 800 million animals slaughtered for food in Canada every year. Imagine if even a dollar or 50 cents or 25 cents was imposed on Went to enforcement. Yeah, exactly. Like like, hundreds of millions. Like we do for everything else. It's just, it's so insane that we have to have this discussion. It's, it's just, it's, 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 it's the utter level, the highest level of insanity to me that we cannot discuss and, and, and about putting on taxes or percentages or whatever you want to call them that are essentially devoted to go back to the to the regulatory model this is not like some crazy idea out there from you know left wing ville or wherever it might be we're we're talking about ideas that exist in a million different areas where we regulate where the regulation comes from the cost of the doing the business itself but amazingly for years for centuries we have just said no 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 End users should not have to support investigation and enforcement and protection of animals. Instead, let's let people who love animals more give to charity to support this initiative. It's just, it's lunacy to me that we are still having these types of discussions. Yeah, and just completely out of step with the way we think about policing and enforcement in all other areas of the law. So You said it, <sighs> 
what's cool about this, $800,000 a year, that's four times as much as the Edmonton Humane Society was spending on enforcement on its own. It was only spending 200 k uh, by itself with only two peace officers and one full-time administrative staffer. So now they're going to have many more inspectors who, as you pointed out, are working full-time and more support staff. So I think wow, this is Camille, just if amazing. Only, it's just what's really hurts me about this. If only if only there had been someone out there who 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 was who was optimistic when the Edmonton Humane Society dropped out and said, maybe this could be a good thing. If only, Camille, I just... If only there was anything on tape you could go back and listen to while <laughs> while while I read and received scorn. Sorry, I, we read and received scorn on Twitter for and, and in many, many private emails about how this was going to be the end of the world for animals because government would never do anything. Wow, Camille, if only anyone had recorded positive sentiments on tape. I, I guess they just don't exist. <laughs> well, that sarcastic reference is... Uh, is um... I don't know, like to six the fact that we've worth? always been supportive of this. Of this. Freaking. Ah, oh, this stuff just drives me crazy. It's it's quite vindicating. I liked reading that article, actually, because I, I we literally, I can produce for you, if I, I didn't want to embarrass the people involved, the variety of emails from all the people, you know, telling me this was the end of the world and the tweets and this is just a disaster and everything's going to go to hell. And I'm like, really? Why? Why would you jump to that conclusion? Why can't we look at this as an opportunity for something new, something better, and a different way of doing business? To me, honestly, when I look at these changes, I think we'll be looking back in, in, in a few years to come and thinking this was the best thing that ever happened to Canadian investigations. Because I've been doing this for 20 years, and for 20 years I've been bitching and moaning about the same thing. The SPCA as a private investigative charity has theoretical and executional flaws. And I'm not knocking anybody working. Again, all my friends out there, you're doing great work. God speed to you. That's not the issue. Structurally, the model is flawed. It has big flaws that do not work. And I think it is time to crack that model down. And I'm glad to see that it's starting to crack, even if it's just for the moment in Edmonton and Ontario. Although it's not just there, Camille. It's already cracked in other places like Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Newfoundland, too. Anyway, right. onwards and upwards, we're going to keep following good. this for sure because it's one of those hot topics in Canadian animal law. That was cathartic. I like getting that out of my system every once in a while. <laughs> okay, Peter, we've got some more good news from Alberta. Usually we're telling stories of horrible cruelty cases from Alberta, but we've actually got a pretty positive story for a change. Do we? Is it more? Is it? Oh, it's the vets, isn't it? It we're, is. We're, we got another another province in Alberta, and boy, Alberta, if, if there's a province that ever needs to ban cat declawing, tail docking, ear cropping, and debarking, it's Alberta, because I'm telling you, I walk down the street and all I see are dock tails and cropped ears. Oh, I know. Once you start noticing that, and you And that's can't just from the teenagers. But I'm bump. Sorry, that's a terrible oh, joke. Terrible oh, that joke. was bad. <laughs> terrible joke. All right. All right. The Alberta Veterinary Association has voted to ban its members from performing cat declawing, tail docking, ear cropping, and debarking procedures on cats and dogs. Mm. Bravo. Good stuff. Yeah, this is, this is amazing. Obviously, it's uh, something happening across the country. They're, they're not the first. Uh, BC has done so. Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland, New Brunswick is probably going to do so. There have been discussions in uh, Ontario as well, and Manitoba, and I believe Saskatchewan already did. So this is sweeping the country right now. Very, very exciting that all these vets are getting on board with 
ridding themselves of these horrible procedures. Well, since and, the vets uh, can't do it, Camille, how do people get their dog's tail cropped these days? That's going to be the ugh, question. Because well, it's not clear to me. It's 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 never been clear to me, and perhaps you can fill me in. There, there, unless the law requires a surgical procedure, which it does not in every jurisdiction, it's still not clear to me that the breeders can't do it themselves at a very young age to the animal. And I bet you that's what happens. Well, yeah, it is still happening. So people can't declaw cats on their own typically. Yeah, that's a surgical, digital a surgical. amputation. That's true. That's true. But, but tail docking is like, possible. Yeah, ear cropping as well. Tail docking, not really debarking, but but tail docking and ear cropping is still happening by breeders. Um, there was an attempted prosecution of this in Nova Scotia, which didn't go well under existing law. So the province actually changed the law to outlaw it. But most provinces haven't done that yet. So this is an issue that urgently needs provincial, if not national attention as well, is just tightening up the laws. So all these procedures are banned completely and not just uh, a prohibition on vets doing them. Yeah, because in, in some of the countries, the way they've done it is they've just made all surgical procedures restricted, and that would include tail docking and ear cropping, and then it's only allowable under certain circumstances with various, you know, uh, um, defined situations. And I think that would be a lot better. I'm not trying to knock what the Alberta vets have done. I applaud it, but I've, I've said on this show before that uh, some of this stuff, it's great for it to be a practice, but it needs to transform into a law in order to really uh, rid our country of these types of procedures yeah couldn't agree more stay tuned because we'll be working on this okay and now for our main segment of the show i have done a special interview with arden beddows arden's a lawyer in vancouver and has represented us in a lot of cases and we sat down to talk about a case he did for a group called the fur bear defenders so here we go Okay, and for today's main interview, I'm joined by Arden Beddows. Arden is a Vancouver-based lawyer with Arve Finley, LLP, and we've known each other for a very long time since law school at University of Toronto. And as listeners, you're already likely familiar with Arden's name because we've definitely talked about him on the podcast before. Arden has represented animal justice in a number of cases, including on an intervention before uh, the BC courts regarding the Vancouver Aquarium, which was challenging a park board bylaw saying it couldn't have any more whales and dolphins. And more recently, a case we've talked about a lot on this podcast is the Bogarts case, which is the constitutional challenge to the Ontario SPCA enforcement system in Ontario, which succeeded. So Arden, welcome to the Pond Order podcast. Thank you, and thank you for the wonderful inter introduction. <laughs> well deserved. Well, we're here today uh, with you to talk about a case you did recently on behalf of the Fur Bearer Defenders, which is a BC-based group that advocates against the killing of wildlife, uh, and particularly for fur. But before we get into the details of that case, I wanted to start off with a bit of a different topic. Uh, many of our listeners are law students or maybe aspiring lawyers. And because you're such an experienced litigator on behalf of animals, in fact, I think at this point you've done, you know, a lot more cases than most people in this country who practice animal law. I'd love for you just to explain a little bit about what your path was like to doing this work and how you got started and what your practice looks like. Sure. Yeah, thank you. And um, you and uh, my lovely partner, Anna Pippis, obviously have no small role in my ha <laughs> having that path. But um, uh yeah, and, and it's an interesting topic because it's something we talked about at the law school, at the Allard School of Law at UBC recently. They're, they had a couple of panels of people who practice in the area of animal law. And one thing that I often say is that 
it doesn't it's not exclusive to any one area of law because animals can be implicated by the law in a huge number of different ways and so you know one of our mutual friends rebecca bretter often uh takes a lot of cases with respect to companion animals but is also doing an important case right now with with respect to horses and you know it's come up in the criminal law in uh dlw you and peter uh intervened with respect to the bestiality provision so it can come up in a lot of different ways and it which means that there's a lot of ways that law students who are interested in the area could become involved in it in the future and maybe that will be driven by what substantive areas of law they want to do or what sort of they want their practice to look like you know and i um obviously became a litigator and coming out of law school i actually went to a firm in toronto that was really purely commercial litigation and it wasn't until I moved to Vancouver um, and was still actually at a largely commercial firm, Ferris, um, that I started to do some more public law. Uh, and, and I think that you know animal issues are going to come up probably more in the public law area than in commercial law. But I started to do some more public law. And I think the first uh, serious animal-related case that I took was pro bono for our mutual friend Gary Charbonneau, who got sued by the Vancouver Aquarium um, for a documentary he was making. And there was an injunction restraining him from using a number of photographs in that documentary. And we appealed that and we had a great appeal where we got to discuss uh, freedom of expression issues, especially as they relate to people who are uh, expressing themselves on um, animal interests and animal issues which we asserted, and I think rightly, that is a significant topic of public concern right now. Um, so I think the way that I came to this path, the shortest way to say it is that I've long been interested in it, and because I'm interested in these issues, and I have a sort of still developing litigation skill set that can be used for them in some respects, uh, it just kind of naturally happened. You know, one thing I actually said at UBC is, it's a funny thing to say, but there's, there's, and I think the Bogarts case uh, that you guys talked about recently, and I listened intently to your podcast on that one, is an example of what I'll call low-hanging constitutional fruit. And I think there is a significant amount of low-hanging constitutional fruit when it comes to animal law, because so few lawyers historically especially have been thinking about these issues. And so you can just have this situation, like with the OSPCA, that raises red flags and yet has persisted for decades and it persists until somebody does something about it and it's kind of only recently that people are starting to do something about these things so i think i've just been lucky um to get into this at the right time and i've been very fortunate to be involved in some really interesting cases and including with our another mutual friend of ours uh, ben oliphant who has an incredible brain for these things um, so I guess that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of the story. I think my, I think what I would say to students who are interested in animal issues is to think both about those issues, but also about what substantive practice areas they're interested in and what they want their practice to look like and find a way to sort of mesh the two together. I mean, you know, what you do, I mean, you're a lawyer too, of course, and, and so is, um, Anna Pippis and you guys don't do litigation. Or, or, you know, maybe you sort of do some litigation-like work, 
But I try to stay out of the courtroom myself, though. These days, as far away as I can get. <laughs> I let <laughs> <Right>. you do that. <laughs> well, and so, so, and so, there's a role. There's a lot of different roles that people can take on, right? And so, it depends on what you want your career to look like and what you feel like, what skill set you want to um, develop. And for me, since I'm just naturally argumentative, this really uh, suits me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you made a really good point. Uh, I think the first point you made was that uh, as animal lawyers, we, we have to be up on a whole lot of areas of the law. And a lot of people think of animal law as how do I specialize in animal law? But I think the point that, that you made is, is a really good one, which is actually as animal lawyers, we have to be extreme generalists. You need to yeah. know a little bit about a lot of areas to be able to do your job effectively and see those connections and see how to build a cool case and advance a new doctrine. And that's kind of what I enjoyed about the OSPCA challenge that we worked on together is that you're right. I don't think a lot of people think of constitutional law or the freedom of expression type cases around the Vancouver Aquarium. Uh, constitutional law isn't usually thought of as something that relates to animals because humans have constitutional rights and animals don't. But it's cool when you can make those connections. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, the areas of law that I think that I can think of just now that cases have gone into are you know, defamation, copyright. The law of injunctions, various principles of statutory interpretation, freedom of expression, obviously a lot. Um, you know, in, in Bogarts, it was Section 7 and Section 8 issues. We were talking about how under Section 8, uh, you know, regulatory searches are subject to a lower standard. Um, yeah, it's a wide variety of areas. Yeah, so students out there, <laughs> take a wide variety of classes. Don't try to limit yourself to anything. Just get a taste of all of it, and it might come in handy later. Okay, well, that's really helpful. Thanks for filling us in a bit. So uh, why don't we move on then to, to the case that you're here to talk about today, which is the case you did on behalf of the Fur Bear Defenders. And it was about the authority of conservation officers in British Columbia to kill wildlife, and in particular, whether they can kind of indiscriminately kill wildlife without uh, too much of a reason for doing so. And you ended up taking this case all the way to a leave application before the Supreme Court of Canada. But before we get there, why don't we start at the beginning? Maybe you could tell us about the facts that gave rise to this case? Sure, yeah. So it all started uh, a few years ago. There was an incident that actually gained a lot of attention. It was up near Dawson Creek, uh, British Columbia, which is in the north uh, northeast part of the province and an individual came across a black bear cub about the size of a domestic cat so very young at the side of the highway uh, that was clearly struggling in some respects he was moving around but um, it didn't seem right there was no mother bear um, and the cub seemed confused it was very close to the road so the individual was concerned and she stopped and observed the bear for a while uh, she called her partner and some friends to have them come help, and she also called uh, the RCMP, who ultimately got in touch with the Conservation Officer Service. And this uh, this was after she'd observed the bear for some time and was thinking, yeah, you know, there's no mother bear around. It doesn't make sense that I can get this close to a cub. Uh, although she was, you know, at first keeping her distance. And when she spoke to a conservation officer for the first time, very quickly in the call, the conservation officer said that he was going to have to kill the bear. Oh. And that was, you know, she was like, how, why? What? That makes no sense. And so her and her partner and a couple of their friends made some calls to do what they could to try to save the bear. And they actually found 
um, one of the institutions in British Columbia that is licensed to rehabilitate uh, wildlife, including black bears, uh, was willing to take the bear, had volunteers who could drive the bear from Dawson Creek, and the arrangements were all ready to go if the bear um, was going to go and get rehabilitated. So the conservation officer, so, and and what uh, this individual did was she ultimately with her partner um, captured the bear in a blanket and put it in the back of their uh, truck, went back to her property and put it in a large uh, dog kennel in the back of, in their backyard. And the bear was active in the kennel um, she said it actually uh, tried to charge at her one time, which was apparently very adorable. And, oh, I bet. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it was it was alive, and that was that. And they had a um, a rehabilitation center that was willing to take the bear. When the officer attended at her property, um, he was not open to the possibility of the bear going to the rehabilitation center. Um, he did not. Uh, advise this individual what exactly he was doing but he went to the cage and administered an injection to the bear and this clearly put the bear into a great amount of distress and there was you know loud sounds and uh she was very upset she didn't she thought it was a lethal injection which ultimately we found out it wasn't it was a tranquilizer um and the officer took the bear back to his truck and drove away and ultimately in his words and in the court's words, which I disagree with, which is something we can talk about, quote unquote, euthanized the bear. Oh, that's one of my pet peeves is when people use the word euthanize as basically a euphemism for killing. Uh, you know, euthanization is something intended to mean like the humane putting out of a suffering of an animal, not just killing an animal for no reason. So yeah, I hear you. Per- precisely. And, 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 and including not for uh, administrative or financial convenience, which is when it's frequently used uh unfortunately including by um the courts in this case and i actually today looked up the word uh euthanasia in the dictionary and uh yeah this was not a euthanasia so um (laughs) especially in circumstances where there's somebody who's saying yeah we'll take the bear and we'll rehabilitate the bear one i'll say one interesting thing about the facts right now which is that the individual who originally witnessed this whole ordeal, I mean, so she, she wrote a Facebook post and the, the Facebook post about this, because she was very upset, and the Facebook post with pictures, it went viral and so it got some media attention and she reached out to the Fur Bear Defenders, which is a great organization um, out here in BC, uh, but also uh, with an imprint across the country and that, that, that advocates on behalf of animals, but advocates for wildlife issues more generally and especially conservation issues and simply for treating wildlife with respect. And so the fur bears uh, took it upon themselves to uh, uh, make a complaint to the Conservation Officer Service about this incident, and ultimately they reached out to me. But one of the interesting things about the facts is that the woman who uh, witnessed all of this, she swore an affidavit in court for this proceeding. And in that affidavit, she said, here are all the things that happened when the officer attended at my property. The officer who attended at the property did not uh, swear an affidavit in respect of what happened at the property, and nobody from the province uh, ever provided any direct evidence about that. This is, this is just like an evidentiary issue, but I think it's an interesting one, and I'll, I'll explain why in a sec. Um, and in court, 
And, and what, the, what the province did do was it attached to an affidavit a report that the officer wrote about the incident after the fact. So after knowing that he's been at a contentious uh, situation, because it was a contentious situation when he attended at their property. Then right, they must he have been wrote, very upset. Yeah, he, they were. They were very upset. And their version of events was not the same as the version of, of events in his report. That report, this was never, I, and I thought, wow, how, how did they not swear an affidavit? I mean, now there's just uncontradicted direct evidence of this. Well, that didn't right. get me nearly as far as I thought it would. Um, and, you know, I made a point in court that, you know, we can't rely uh, for the truth of its contents on the officer's report because it's hearsay and he could, I mean, he could have sworn an affidavit saying, yeah, what happened, what I say in that report is what happened. But he didn't even do that. And so I thought in the circumstances, like, we just can't rely on that. We just have to accept um, this individual's evidence as the truth. Um, but that wasn't the approach that it seemed to be adopted, although there was no explicit discussion of this. Uh, there was no discussion of hearsay in any of the judgments, no discussion of exceptions to hearsay or why this evidence gets in. None of that. Oh, and that's that's interesting. And, and just backing up for a second, for any non-lawyers who are kind of curious what we're going on about here, if you want to rely on something in court and say, this is what happened, you need some evidence of that. As a lawyer, you can't just show up and say, guess what, judge, this is what happened. You need somebody to testify to that or someone to swear an affidavit under oath and say, this is what happened. So that's what Arden's referring to here is what you need to be able to prove the case that you want to make. Right, and and as you would know better than me, in the criminal context, I mean, this that would not fly, right? Um, you wouldn't be able to uh, get in hearsay evidence in that manner. But one thing, and this is something I've said to students who are interested in animal law, and it sort of jives with this point I made that there tends to be more low-hanging constitutional fruit in this area, is that, especially historically, animal issues I have not found get treated uh, with the same seriousness by everybody involved in the administration of the legal system. And that's disappointing, and it leads to, um, well, it can lead to unconstitutional decisions, as we found in uh, the Vancouver Aquarium case. It can lead to unconstitutional laws, as we found in the uh, case with the OSPCA. Of course, that's still under appeal. and. And, and, and it, but it, it all flows from the same thing where I, you get this sense sometimes that people are saying, well, it's animals, so who cares? Yeah, man, whatever, not that important. You'll let the animal people deal with this. The court shouldn't really be involved. That's kind of the attitude sometimes. Yeah, that, that's the feeling you get. And, and Whereas when you get into the criminal law, gosh, you know, if you admitted a piece of hearsay evidence, uh, you know, acquitted. <laughs> you know, like yeah. all of these things are sort of followed uh, to a T, uh, much more. Anyway, that's that's like a that's really just a side issue, I think, about what the case was about. But I, I feel like it sort of it jives with some of these things that we we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so after this whole incident, um, the fur bears put in a complaint to the conservation officer service, and the gist of this whole complaint is that conservation officers only have the authority to kill wildlife, and wildlife is a defined term in the Wildlife Act in British Columbia. They only have the authority to kill wildlife in the circumstances that are set out in Section 79 of the Wildlife Act, which I can actually tell you right now says 
that an officer may kill an animal other than a domestic animal that is at large and is likely to harm persons, property, wildlife, or wildlife habitat. So the gist of it is they may kill an animal that is likely to harm. An right, animal so that's, pretty, inclu- that's pretty narrow. That doesn't seem to confer any broad right to just shoot animals left and right for convenience or for reasons of space at a sanctuary or anything else like that, does it? No, exactly. I mean, and, and, and so when, when I first saw this, I looked at this provision and I sort of thought, okay, well, there's an explicit authority to kill animals. And, and, the, and the defined term animal in the Wildlife Act includes wildlife. So animal is actually the broadest animal-related definition in the legislation. Excuse me. Right. And so, um, so I, I sort of thought, okay, well, this uh, provision does not grant the authority to kill this animal in this circumstance. So if the officer does have that authority, from where does it come? And, and Conservation Officer Service, can you please explain that to us? And all we got from the Conservation Officer Service was, well, yeah, but look at Section 86 of the Wildlife Act, which says it's, a, it's an immunity provision. It's often referred to as an immunity provision. And it says defense provisions in this act and the regulations of the Firearm Act do not apply to an officer engaged in the performance of his or her duties and i thought are you saying that if an officer is just like at work they can kill animals or is there any they, they can kill wildlife is there is there ability to kill wildlife in any way circumscribed it didn't it just didn't seem to make sense to us because it seemed it seemed like they were saying, well, as long as an officer is at work, they can kill wildlife whenever they want, because that's sort of the implication of using that provision in that manner. Yeah, that's um, what it sounds like to me as well. And you know, for our listeners, it's actually fairly common in, in um, offense-based statutes, criminal or quasi-criminal, that officers engaged in their duties aren't um, subject to typical offenses that an individual might incur liability for. And the rationale for that is that they need the leeway to do their jobs. But that, of course, it's a different issue, right, from where their authority to do certain things comes from. Like, they need authority. Uh, they might be exempt from certain offense positions, but that doesn't mean that they don't need some source of authority for their actions in the first place, right? Well, exactly. And that was the whole, that's the whole uh, point of our application for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court, was that, because ultimately where this went, and, and the, the BC Supreme Court and the BC Court of Appeal they actually took different routes to get to a decision that, no, no, uh, the officer can do this. Or And further, Section 79 of the Act does not restrict their ability to kill uh, animals to just situations where the animals are a threat. But what the BC Court of Appeals said, and actually there's, there's a, right at the very end, it says, by exempting officers from its offense provisions when they are acting in the performance of their duties, the statute provides them with a broad discretion to take actions that would ordinarily be unlawful. That wow. one of the points we made in our leave application is that is a very unusual way of interpreting an immunity section because you're interpreting the immunity section as actually conferring authority. That is not something that would happen in the criminal context as I'm sure you would know better than me. Um, and we and 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 one of the one of the points the court made was they said, well, you know, we're concerned about this because you know this isn't the right forum to decide whether an officer committed an offense. And we said, well, that's not what we're that's not our point. I mean, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but we're not we're not seeking that relief. We know we can't. What we're saying is he didn't have the lawful authority. 
And in the BC Court of Appeals decision, it doesn't draw this distinction between an officer committing an offense versus doing something for which they don't have the lawful authority. Right. So, so, so the BC Court of Appeal. So to, just backing up for a second. So you took it to the Supreme Court, the BC Supreme Court. They found against you. They said that, what did they say? That there's implicit authority somewhere in the act? Yeah. Well, no, they didn't say there's an authority. They, they actually used a doctrine called the doctrine of implication by, or um, necessary implication. So jurisdiction by necessary implication. That's what it's called. And I won't get into the ins and outs of the doctrine, but basically they said, um, one of the quotes from that court's decision is uh, that they find it impossible that uh, officers, they say officers may need to manage wildlife in diverse circumstances in the wilds of British Columbia, far from ready access to rehabilitation centers or the veterinary treatment that is contemplated by the provisions of, and I'll get to this in a second, the Revenge from Cruelty to Animals Act. And they, they, they say that it is inconceivable that the legislature intended to restrict wildlife management powers of officers to kill wildlife to those that are at large and likely to harm. And our, another, another point, I'm sort of going a little bit far, but the reason I'm, I'm, one reason that matters is because there's a whole other piece of legislation that relates to this, and it's called the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. And the purpose of that act, of course, is in the name. And, yeah, and that's the general animal protection statute that most provinces have, and that's BC's version, right? Exactly. And you may have heard me say that under the Wildlife Act, they can kill animals that are at large and likely to harm. But what about animals that are not at large? Well, if you look at the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, it says this act does not apply to wildlife as defined in the Wildlife Act that is not in captivity. So therefore, it does apply to wildlife that is in captivity. And so once wildlife is in captivity, that act takes over and it has a whole regime that can be fairly called a euthanasia regime. And one of the one of the things that an animal needs to be in before you're allowed to kill it is critical distress. And that is assessed by a veterinarian. Because, right. because I mean, one of, one of the issues here, I mean, you know, the, the um, BC Court of Appeal right off the top in their judgment says that this appeal addresses the powers of conservation officers to destroy animals where they consider that doing so is appropriate for humanitarian reasons. Well, we say that's just not even part of their job. They don't euthanize animals. If they think an animal might need to be, and they don't have training in that regard either. Um, you know, oh, they don't officer, even have training, do they? No, no, they don't, they don't. They're not trained to, you know, assess a black bear, like whether or not it can survive, whether or not it's appropriate to go to rehabilitation center. They, they don't have the expertise to do that. And that's why they, they're, they're actually their own policy manual, manual in many circumstances directs that they are referred to the they're to refer the animal to a veterinarian, but also in the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, it's a veterinarian that makes the decision as to whether an animal is in critical distress, and only in circumstances where it's impossible to get a veterinarian can anybody else make that determination. Well, right. which raises the question: Was the animal in this case in a kennel in somebody's backyard at large or in captivity? Well, because if it's in like captivity. captivity. Sounds like captivity to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so that was one of our points. As I, I'm kind of going far afield here, but as you can see, there's a lot of issues that came up in this case. And what we were saying is that between the Wildlife Act and the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, you have a complete code for when these animals can be killed. And if, if an officer is out in the middle of the forest and they find an animal that they think is in distress, um, they don't have authority to kill it just on that basis. They can, they, they can leave it or they can... 
uh, have a veterinarian assess the animal. But their role as law enforcement is to just protect from animals that are likely to harm because they're peace officers. That's what they do. Right. They're not sort of like freelance, free roaming individuals who go out there and just sort of keep an eye on wildlife and see if it's in distress or something needs to happen. They're, they're, they're actually to enforce the law. Right. Exactly. And they're, they're, they're yeah. So, and, and so this just isn't part of their role. That, that was, you know, our whole point. And that, and we say the legislation makes that quite clear. Um, so, you know, we, we, we made all of these points in our leave application um, and more. I, I think our leave application, and sorry, I think I skipped around a bit. The process was, first we went to the BC Supreme Court and we said, this makes no sense. We're not getting a good, a satisfying answer from the Conservation Officer Service. Um, and we're looking for uh, basically some court direction on the circumstances in which an officer can kill wildlife. And the court used a doctrine that um, the Court of Appeal did agree with us on this one point that does not really apply in the circumstances, this doctrine of, of jurisdiction by necessary implication. Which, which, and so we appealed that, and a lot of the thrust of our appeal was, well, this doctrine doesn't apply in these circumstances. And the province basically just replied saying, uh, yeah, no, their decision is right. So then when the Court of Appeal came with sort of an entirely different route for getting to the conclusion that yes, officers do have this authority. And their route was basically that the immunity provision confers that authority because as the court says, it, the statute operates from the presumption that what is not prohibited as an offense is permitted. Yeah, and that's super, super worrying to me because it just seems like basically anything goes. Like what defines the scope of an officer's duties if it's not in the statute? Is it basically anything that they want to do? Right, and 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 so... And, and, the, and the court, well, the court said what defines it is when they are engaged in the performance of their duties. And one of the interesting things, <clears throat> one of the interesting things the court said was um, that, well, we don't have a record before us because the parties haven't provide us, provided us with a record um, to explain to us when an officer is engaged in the performance of their duties. Now, I don't, um, I'm not sure what such a record would look like. We did have in the record the policy manual for what officers are to do with black bear cubs. I don't think there is anything else, frankly, out there that could tell us whether and when an officer is engaged in the performance of their duties. During the hearing, there's a suggestion that potentially the terms of employment of an officer would have that information. Um, I'm not aware of whether it does. I kind of doubt it, to be completely honest. Um, or I kind of doubt that it would shed much light on what an officer was to do in this particular situation. Um, but then when the, the court says it's a, diff, a difficult question, it seems to me, is to define when an officer is engaged in the performance of their duties. And that says, um, that's not an issue that's been canvassed, so it would be unwise to make any definitive pronouncement on that issue. But then it goes on to say that on the face of it, this officer was at all times engaged in the performance of his duties as a conservation officer, and so would not appear to be in contravention of any statutory prohibition. So, so they're kind of, kind of said, saying that they don't want to define the scope of his duties, but they're saying, yeah, but this is fine. This is totally within the scope of duties. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what it sounds like um, from my perspective as well. Um, so that was, again, concerning. Um, so, you know, so it, it was sort of difficult to be ready for that appeal because the court, it was clear sort of right from the outset was taking a different approach than it'd be taken in the court below. And of course, the appeal materials were all driven by what the decision in the court below was. And I had sort of thought, well, 
the doctrine of jurisdiction by necessary implication is really the only way that you can get to this idea that they have this authority. And that doctrine just clearly does not work in this circumstance. And so that was kind of the thrust of our appeal, right? So we weren't weren't ready for this sort of fairly different theory of the case. But that's what we got. So are you up there on your feet then and the judges are kind of lobbing questions that indicate they've got this different theory? And do you then kind of just have to respond on your feet? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, and, you know, it was clear that where the court was going was, um, well, section, you know, it's only prohibitive if it's an offense. And section 86 says that as long as they're engaged in the performance of their duties, they don't commit an offense. So um, are you saying he wasn't engaged in the performance of his duties? And I, and there's, we came up with a lot of the responses to that in our leave application. It's harder to come up with them on your feet. But one thing I said was, well, you know, wildlife is owned by the crown and these officers, um, they're not the crown. They're employed by the crown, but unless they are agents to the crown and as a, as a, um, aspect of their agency are granted authorities that the crown would otherwise only have, um, they don't have, they don't presumptively have all the powers that the crown has. And in this statute, there is an explicit provision dealing with the killing of animals and it sets out the circumstances under which that killing is lawful. Um, and so I say without a provision that permits this, they don't presumptively have that authority simply because they're employees of the crown. Right. It has to um, be much more explicit. Right. It has to be more explicit, which is the way it works with peace officers, right? Um, and that was sort of one of the points that we made in our leave application. So there's sort of four broad points that we made in response uh, to the Court of Appeal. Well, I say it's in response to what the Court of Appeal did. <clears throat> it's actually... What we said in our leave application, and as some people will know, like when you're seeking leave to the Supreme Court of Canada, just pointing out the reasons that you say the decision is incorrect is not sufficient. The overarching consideration is uh, the public importance of the case. And so what the Supreme Court, as I understand it, is looking for is a brief that sets out why it should hear this case um, that doesn't necessarily focus on well, the decision was wrong, but focuses on why is it going to be helpful to the public at large? Why is it going to be helpful to the legal profession? Uh, is it going to have broad ramifications? Is it an issue the Supreme Court hasn't dealt with for a long time? And so we thought that this was a case that was, um, you know, fairly amenable to getting leave to appeal. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, as a lot of people, again, will know the Supreme Court rejects the vast majority of leave applications. It can't take, um, it, it can only take a, a small fraction of them. Um, but despite that, and, and so what that means is that even if it on the merits might overturn an appellate decision, that, for, that is from a province's court of appeal, that doesn't mean it's going to grant leave uh, to appeal that decision. No, and it's basically just a time resource allocation issue. The Supreme Court just can't get through them all, so it just has to triage and choose the, the most egregious <laughs> abuses of uh, justice or, or so on to, to rule on. Right, exactly. And the ones that are going to have, you know, uh, significant importance. And so, you know, we pointed to the fact that, you know, there's a lot of commonalities between the wildlife acts across the country. Um, No wildlife act had really been dealt with in any substantive way by the Supreme Court in a very long time. Um, And we said and and we said the, the mere question of whether and when officers across Canada may kill wildlife in and of itself is a question of public importance, as evidenced by the amount of uh, attention just this one incident received and the amount of sort of um, 
public backlash the uh, the actions of the conservation officer received. Uh, and so then we made four overarching points beyond that, which is number one, what we were just discussing, the use of this immunity provision uh, as conferring authority. And so in that, under that sort of, I'll call it a ground of appeal, under that issue, we talked about how that's just not how immunity provisions are used in the criminal law context, certainly. They only apply when an officer is actually being charged with an offense. <laughs> and then the officer picks it up and uses it as a defense to that offense, right? I mean, they say, no, no, I, I was engaged in the performance of my duties. And so, you know, for example, um, if it's, it, might, it might apply if an officer is arresting somebody and they get kind of rough in doing so. You know, if a, if a private citizen does that, that's called assault, right? Um, but an officer can use an immunity provision and say, no, I was engaged in the performance of my duties, and so I, I can't be convicted of assault for what I did there. This yeah, is, that's right. That's it would be a lawful use of the, that officer's authority to arrest somebody, so it's not assault. Right, exactly. But you would never say, um, as long as an officer's at work, they can assault people. That's not how, that's not how the immunity provision works, right? No, certainly um, not. So, so that's kind of what the first uh, thing we got into was. The second one was this concept of officers being agents of the Crown. Because one of the things that the Court of Appeals said was, well, the Crown, own, the Crown owns wildlife. And so it actually said that, what, it said that our argument failed to recognize that conservation officers are Crown servants acting on behalf of the Crown. Far from interfering with government control of wildlife, they are the agent by which the government exercises such control. Calling peace officers agents in that way is, is also um, fairly unusual. So there's a body of law that says, uh, this, for example, here's, here's a quote from the Supreme Court. Police officers can in no respect be regarded as agents or officers of the city. Their duties are of a public nature. Their appointment is devote, devolved on cities and towns by the legislature as a convenient mode of exercising a function of government, but this does not render them liable for their unlawful or negligent acts. It's basically saying, and they say, a constable's authority is original, not delegated, and is exercised at his own discretion by virtue of his office. So he's not, and, and then they say, the essential difference is recognized in the fact that his relationship to the government is not in ordinary parlance described as that of servant and master. So the way the Court of Appeal describes the conservation officer in this context is not how peace officers are typically thought of. Rather, their authority derives from statute. They are not imbued with ownership of things that the Crown owns. They only derive authority from statute, except there are certain circumstances where they be, can be considered agents of the crown, but those, it's a fairly narrow set of circumstances. So that was an issue we felt popped out of this Court of Appeal judgment. And it was an issue that hadn't come up in the case yet because it hadn't really been argued that way up until this point. Right. It just showed up in the BC Court of Appeal judgment. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so this, that was one of the things that we talked about in our leave application. The next thing we talked about is the status of wildlife as property of the Crown. And one of the reasons we talked about that is because there's, there's actually quite a long-standing common law doctrine that even though the Crown owns all public lands, it doesn't own them in the same way that a private citizen owns their house. It actually, th that ownership is subject to a public trust. So it, it, it owns the land in trust for the benefit of the public generally. And we say that 
and constrains, at least in some ways, the manners in which the crown can dispose of that property. Um, and it constrains it in ways that, you know, normal private ownership of property wouldn't be constrained. And same goes with wildlife. The crown owns wildlife in public trust. And so one of the things that we wanted to talk about, and this was going to be, I think, a useful way to bring this case back to being about animals, was the our evolving views of animals. And you know, one thing that I think it was uh, Justice Abella referred to in DLW was the transformed legal environment as regards animals. That colors that public trust. And so the crown doesn't, so even assuming, even assuming that the officer is an agent of the crown, and even assuming the crown can say, uh, officer, as our agent, uh, you may go and uh, kill wildlife in a broader set of circumstances that are in the Wildlife Act. We say the crown can't, the crown is constrained in doing that by this public trust. Now, and that public trust is colored by the fact that people don't want officers going around killing wildlife all the time. Uh, they don't like that. Yeah, and I found this argument really interesting because I think, like you said, it does bring it back to the the real animal law aspects of this, not just public sort of law or administrative law, but the fact that animals and their status um, as property may be affected by the idea that they're a special kind of property um, and this fiduciary duty that stems potentially from the idea that they're a unique form of property and have inherent value in their own. And uh, I, you know, I, I really like that because I, I think it's a way to sort of use the case to attack in some sense the property paradigm and this whole idea that animals are just property to be used at the whim of whoever owns them. Yeah, totally. And it's a way to uh, br bring it back to this developing body of law that is recognizing that we don't think of animals the same way we do, as you say, other property, right? I mean... And this is something that, you know, you've obviously been tracking and I've been tracking. I call it the, the body of animals matter case law, which is <laughs> just various, various pronouncement from courts uh, that, well, wait a minute, you know, people care about how we treat animals and uh, it's, not, you know, it's not the same as how we treat a house. And so that, I think, that this, this idea of the crown owning wildlife uh, in public trust for the benefit of the public and in a manner that conforms to the values of the public. I think that was the way we wanted to express this uh, in this case. Uh, we did raise the concept of public trust in the BC Supreme Court. Um, I don't think there was really any mention of it in the decision. We didn't raise it in the Court of Appeal because in the Court of Appeal, we were largely directed at um, appealing the decision below, which was based, as I said, on this doctrine of jurisdiction by necessary implication. Right. Um, so, and, and, and another thing that, another point that we made that I think is sort of similar, and it comes down to this um, distinction that I was talking about earlier about, you know, whether something is lawful versus whether or not it's actually an offense. And we said that um, usually when government acts unconstitutionally or has unconstitutional legislation, like say in the criminal law, there's a number of different ways that that can be impugned. So in the criminal law, it could be because, uh, you know, evidence is excluded, right? Or, or individuals are prosecuted and they challenge the law. And we said the fact that this proceeding involves the killing of wildlife rather than the rights of an indiv individual person, first of all, doesn't change the fact that officers under the Wildlife Act can only act when they have legal authority to do so. But we also say that that we we also said that that favors further court direction in the case. So we are saying it favors uh, leave to appeal, 
because when you have a criminal prosecution, there's many, many opportunities, as I say, for the court to consider the lawfulness of the officer's conduct. Really, when it comes to wildlife and animal issues generally, oftentimes a reference case like this is really the only means of obtaining any direction about whether or not officers or, or other public authorities have any theory, have any authority to do various things as regards animals. And that's actually the same sort of thing that uh, Chief Justice Fraser said in Reese, which you'll know and, and some, some people might know is an Alberta Court of Appeal decision regarding Lucy the Elephant at the Edmonton Zoo. And uh, what Chief Justice Fraser said was that the law has long recognized that a wrongful act may give rise to different legal proceedings with different consequences, but that in the animal law context, oftentimes a declaration in civil court is the only effective means of ensuring government compliance with laws that are designed to protect animals. Absolutely. That's, that's a very important point, because as we talked about on this podcast before, and anybody who's involved in the practice of animal law knows, it can be challenging to get your matter before the court. We're often relying on human rights to try to advance causes, because animals don't have standing on their own to do various things. So I, you know, I think it's important to have brought that up before the Supreme Court. It's unfortunate that they didn't bite and seize that opportunity to actually <laughs> you know, pronounce on something to do with animals. But hey, maybe next time, right? Yeah, I tried to. We tried to throw in all the hooks we could. <laughs> you know, we, yeah, we you have a lot of good ones. <laughs> yeah, we referenced Justice Abella's, uh, you know, transformed legal environment about animals. <laughs> we we referenced Reese. <laughs> we 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 brought it to uh, you know uh, police authorities, so it would have sort of this broader um, application. It wouldn't even just be about wildlife. It's about whether or not immunity provisions can actually confer authority, um, but. As we said, the Supreme Court can only take a few cases. So, yeah, maybe next time we'll get an animal case there. And and notably, they've—I uh, don't think they've ever granted a leave application. The DLW case that Peter and I intervened in—that was a an automatic right of appeal because it was a criminal case with a split appellate decision. So that means you get there automatically. Uh, they denied leave in the Lucy the Elephant case, unfortunately, and they've denied leave in this one, but. But, of course, there's still huge value in bringing these cases forward, getting media exposure, and creating the idea in the, the mind of Supreme Court justices that these cases do belong at the Supreme Court. So it's only a matter of time before they do take one, I'm sure, and pronounce something significant. But, Arden, what uh, is next for the fur bearers? Do you know whether there's any other means being pursued to try to seek justice in the case of this bear and more generally with the uh, powers granted to conservation officers? Yeah, I mean, I think the angle now is this is a political issue and people are not satisfied in British Columbia. A lot of people are not satisfied with the way the Conservation Officer Service uh, functions and the way it treats what it calls uh, wildlife conflict incidents. Um, it does appear to be somewhat of an officer to officer situation. Not all officers uh, behave the same way or would behave in the same way in the same situation. <clears throat> but so what Fur Bears is doing is lobbying the provincial government and my understanding is there is some uh sort of a review going on uh with respect to how whether and when conservation officers may kill animals or at least how they must behave uh when there are wildlife conflict incidents i mean you know one thing that we haven't even talked about that's very concerning is there, there's no um regulated or statute let alone statutory process that is that you go through when an officer kills an animal it's just they just kill the animal and then they write a report but it's not there's nothing that you have to do it's just and even if they use you know even if they use their firearm 
you know, that just that's how it goes. Yeah, so um, they're just out there indiscriminately shooting animals using firearms to do so, but no one is really tracking that or monitoring the situation other than a report somewhere. There's certainly no independent monitoring. Um, and, and so that is, uh, I think, a development that would be a good thing and, and would allow people to have some confidence in what's going on because, you know, the public confidence in how laws are administered is obviously hugely important. There's plenty of court decisions that say that. And I think one thing that this incident has revealed is there are a lot of people, not just in British Columbia, but across the country who do not have confidence in the way wildlife issues and the way wildlife is being treated by at least a number of officers. And so hopefully the government will have ears to that issue. Hopefully there'll be some movement. Um, you know, obviously every government, including the BC provincial government, has a lot on its plate. And sometimes animal issues can be a, a political hot potato that nobody wants to pass around, even with when there are governments that, you know, we might otherwise uh, share a lot of ground with. Um, you know, sometimes you need to have a court decision to compel the government to actually act. Um, so unfortunately, we weren't, we weren't able to get that here, but that the fur bearers will continue to tirelessly communicate with the government on these issues as much as it can. Well, no doubt. Leslie Fox, the executive director of fur bearers, is a powerhouse and tireless, so I'm sure she will do that. But I, I think, as you point out, the point of bringing a court case is often to win, and I know it was in this case, and I think it was a great case, and I'm disappointed in the courts that they've decided in ways I don't think were right. But sometimes the power of bringing litigation is is also in the public discourse that it creates and the political discourse that, that stems from that litigation. So hopefully, at the very least, Leslie and the fur bearers will be able to use this to drive some change within government. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's definitely the hope. Great. Well, Arden, thank you so much for joining us to discuss this case in great detail. It was really interesting to hear more about it, and I'm sure we're going to have you back on again. We still have cases going on together, and I'm sure more to come, <laughs> but the, the Bogarts case is being appealed, and so uh, we'll be, of course, seeking to intervene at that again before the Ontario Court of Appeals, so maybe we'll have you back on to chat about that again. Awesome. Sounds good. We're just going to keep on picking away at that low-hanging constitutional fruit. Lots of work to be done. Yeah. Oh, okay, thanks, Arden. Good to have you here. Thank you. Heroes and Zeros. All right, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes Everyone's and Zeros. Favorites. You know, everybody's right. favorite. A country that I wouldn't typically think of giving a hero award to, Russia. Russia. Russia, I know. Russia, Camille. I know, Russia. Russia is our hero? Wow. It's shocking. Did I was this ad paid for by Donald Trump or what? <laughs> I feel like somehow we're getting we're we're trying to give Russia some love. All right, let's give Russia some love. You know, I don't think I'd accept Donald Trump as a podcast sponsor if he tried Neither to would be, I. So definitely not. All right, so we're giving Russia a little love. They've done something good for animals. Go, Camille. Tell us. Tell us all about so it. So there has been a whale prison, a whale jail, a watery whale oh, jail yes, in Russia. Oh, yes, I've heard about this one. Yeah, you may have seen this on social media. It's really awful to contemplate, but essentially a group in Russia captured a bunch of whales. I believe they're mostly belugas and orcas, and they've kept them inside this uh, ocean-based confinement facility, basically like a watery whale jail, for a number of months. Um, it seems like the, the companies that captured them want to sell them to amusement parks abroad, probably also uh, particularly in China. 
And a lot of people have been agitating about this because it's really upsetting to see the photos. There's a bunch of babies in there. They're all crammed in. It's, it's really awful to see. But the Russian authorities, apparently uh, taking their cue from Vladimir Putin, have ordered that the whales all be released. And apparently the, the, the companies who capture the whales are being charged as well for illegal capture. Uh, and the it seems like they have a history of selling animals to amusement parks abroad, uh, potentially illegally. So good news, these whales are going to be freed, and Vladimir Putin is to thank for this. I, I, I have no words, Camille. I, I, this is not something I ever expected would happen on Paw and Order, but when, 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 when it's good for the animals, we got we gotta, we call it as we see it. Is that right? Fair to say, Camille? Yeah, credit where credit is due. I'm glad that Russia is taking this step. And uh, I've just realized here there's 11 orcas and 87 belugas. That's a lot of animals. So this is making a big difference for a lot of whales. I just want everyone to, to, to see what's coming to get the whole picture in context here because our hero is Russia and our zero, Camille, is our own country of Canada. <laughs> how, how did that happen i don't know i don't know just oh, to be clear boy. this has nothing no reflection on the broader geopolitical state of the world no no of course not camille all right all let's right, get to our zero the canadian government the canadian government so this is a weird story but i was called by a reporter from the national post the other week and he'd found this posting online where the canadian government was auctioning off a birkin bag an hermes i, I think that's how you pronounce it but that's like a high-end fashion line hermes hermes mm. i i don't know it's a little too rich for my tastes and not vegan enough but hermes birkin bag which is a famous bag named after jane birkin the actress this particular bag is made out of crocodile skin, actually from the skin of an endangered crocodile. And the government noted on this auction website where it was selling this bag for a minimum bid of $26,000, it noted that the bag was from an endangered crocodile and that CITES restrictions on the import-export of endangered species materials could apply. So I spoke with a reporter about this, and there ended up being a Nationalist Post story that we'll link to about it. Uh, and I made the point that it's inappropriate for the government to be selling the skin of an endangered crocodile for profit. You think? And pro yeah, and promoting the idea that this is somehow like a good fashionable thing to be doing, which is wearing endangered crocodile skin. Like, what the heck? Wow. That is pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. It's like, yeah, and it, it's gotten endangered. Like, like, forget about the government's view towards animals generally, because we, we know generally they don't care one way or the other, or at least they're ambivalent or whatever. But, like, the whole statement of essentially saying, well, you know, this may be a restricted items under CITES, but let's sell it anyway because we want to profit back from it in some particular way. I'm assuming it was a forfeited item. Like, they must have got it from some tax thing or something, right? Yeah, that's right, because I, I looked into it. I'm not an expert in endangered species import-export laws, but I know a little bit. And I looked into it further, and what I learned is that the the bag is, is probably not problematic from a legal perspective. There's all kinds of exemptions to CITES rules. So CITES right. is the Convention on the International right. Trade in Endangered Species. Because but they're supposed you... to destroy they're supposed to destroy the items. I, as I understand it, if it is covered by CITES, they're supposed to destroy them because they can't put them back into trade. Like that's the idea. So this has to be an exception. That's why I'm guessing it was just forfeited through some tax proceeding or some, you know, criminal proceeding where they actually they uncovered it and I guess they're trying to sell it because like what else would they do with it yeah yeah exactly I don't think it was the kind of thing where it would have been seized at the border as mm, being an illegal I agree. import I agree 
because there's huge exemption societies. And I actually learned a fair bit while researching this about why societies is, is fairly ineffective when it comes to personal belongings. There are exemptions for things like purses, clothing, luggage, all of this made from endangered species. You can have a certain amount of these things on your person if you're traveling. And even though you're carrying and promoting the, the trade in international endangered animals, uh, that's not a problem for CITES due to this exemption. So like the fact that Hermes can keep producing all of these bags made from the skin of endangered crocodiles and there's no restrictions even on people transporting them under CITES is just shocking to me. Me too. Well, that's why they get a well-deserved zero. Zero for Canada. Zero for Canada. Wow. All right. Well, that was exciting. We don't usually go to the governments for uh, Heroes and Zeros. So this was our, our special geopolitical issue of Heroes and Zeros, where we played off almost like an old uh, Canada-Russia hockey series. Uh, but we come out the loser in this particular Heroes and Zeros episode. Camille, we'll have to do something about that in future. <laughs> Good one. All right, that brings us to the very end of our show. We'd like to thank everybody for listening today. Hope to catch you on another episode soon on Paw and Order. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Pot and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.